listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi, welcome to episode 27 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now. I'm Kenny Kins. Joining me in the uh, hot seat, it's the first time I think on this particular show, but definitely uh, well known to listeners of our feed, is uh, one Mr. Daddy Tank or King... King? <laughs> I suppose you could be a king. Kim Monaghan. Hello, Hello Kim. Exactly. Yep, Kim Monaghan. Kim Daddy Tank Monaghan. King of nothing. King of nothing. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> Jack of everything. <laughs> uh, listeners can send in the second part of that soon-to-be-famous uh, quote. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest pronouncer known to uh, I don't know, Birmingham or something. But anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> apologies. In joke, in joke. Yeah, an in-joke there. Uh, apologies for the lack of shows. There's quite a few reasons for this. I'm not going to bore you completely with the details. Maybe I will, actually. Uh, <laughs> I had to go on a tour with the Disinfo um, podcast guys, Raymond and Austin. I've been ill and had a complete, and Kim can vouch for me on this, I had a complete technological meltdown with all my equipment, so I had to actually go and get new equipment. Uh, so I could actually do the podcast, which cost me a lot of money. But, you know, we have all the equipment sorted and we're back on track, etc. Well, we're meant to be. Like a phoenix from the ashes. Yeah, rising from the ashes. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the saddle again. technologically enhanced Kenny. Yeah, back in the more technologically enhanced saddle, I'd say. I don't know, but uh, yeah, so apologies if we been absent but that's pretty much the reason why i mean um also people that listen to behind closed doors we've got we've hit another hitch with that as well on top of the uh, it's not going particularly well at the moment no that's it's our ability to actually capture songs has uh has failed us so we're we're praying for an update to a particular service we use and uh, if not we'll have to sort of edge our way around it or something but uh you know i'd like to listen to right now kim what would you like to listen to right now, Ken? I'd love to Tell listen me. to. I'd love to listen to an advert. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anything. I'd like to listen to more either. Well, guess what? Here's some adverts. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes. So keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about nine pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy. Let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Zany Warriors. Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Marlene from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. 
those adverts are pretty good, weren't they, Kim? <laughs> they were among my uh, favourites. Yeah, as as adverts for podcasts go, I don't know, they're, they're, they're up there. So um, we've been away for a while. To sort of get back to back in the swing of things, I decided to uh, create a kind of a powerhouse episode of three of the, I reckon, the most important writers, commentators, call them what you will, of the, uh, of the I don't know, the last decade countercultural milieu. Who dad? <laughs> yeah. Who dad? What's him calling? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got for you today uh, Douglas Rushkoff. Richard Metzger and Are You Serious? So this episode, what I wanted to look at was in the 90s, back when I was uh, coming up as a writer, stroke journalist, stroke whatever. Um, <laughs> your general asshole, um, <laughs> Bum. Uh, I was really interested in fringe culture. And luckily, <laughs> the uh, fringe culture seemed to explode. You know, counterculture, call it what you will. In the 90s, we had like the, you know, the X-Files on the television all of a sudden. We had... Uh, a sort of explosion of UFO spottings and you know and groups forming and also on top of that we had things like the disinformation company starting and releasing you know TV series you know TV series that's, that's bad English you know, releasing uh, uh, you know the TV series on Channel 4 in the UK if I don't know you, if you got it in your other countries I think we only got it in the UK actually but it was quite a big deal and you know publications like the 14 Times suddenly became really big and these huge conventions were happening all over the place and it was this huge gathering together of different fringe cultures in in, in one place like nowadays rather than uh, the conspiracy nuts if you can call them that, I hate using that word but you know the conspiracy fans for say uh, being on one site say like above top secret the paranormal guys being on another site etc everything was all kind of together in these different kind of macro sites where everyone existed in one place and it was uh, it was a sort of great place to be at the time and basically it sort of vanished and I think this is basically what this episode's about is trying to talk to these pillars of this era and (laughs) finding out exactly what happened to that era you know to that uh cultural explosion if you will and um so yeah the first person I brought onto the show is someone we've had on but only very briefly in an earlier episode episode 23 in fact um his name is Richard Metzger and he's famous for forming the uh, disinformation company as I mentioned earlier on and uh, he's a really, really interesting guy, and obviously he's no longer part of the disinformation company. But um, uh, he's, you know, has many things happening, including his Dangerous Minds TV show, which I urge you all to check out on uh, YouTube. It's very cool. But basically, Met- Richard Metzger was the guy that kind of presented all this stuff to me in a weird way. He was the, uh, the almost like the figurehead for fringe culture back in the day. Yeah, so I wanted to sort of talk to him, get to know him a little bit in this part, and. Uh, you know, see what he thought of my theories. Modern revolutionary doesn't necessarily want to bring the system down or destroy capitalism. Far from it. In a society where capital is king and when every fucking dipshit with a dot com is making bank, like they are printing cash in the cellar, and many of them are, the point should be to get as close to that AOL, Time Warner, AT&T, CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, RCA money as you possibly can get. If they will give, you should grab and not think twice. 
The truly up-to-date rebel rouser wisely seeks the path of least resistance and subverts from within. The multinational media corporations need people like us to make their software, write their articles, and produce their television shows. Smell an opportunity for mischief? I do. Have your cake and throw it too, in other words. Don't complain about the media, become the media. Ladies and gentlemen, I have seen the Illuminati, and it is us. Okay, tell me how you became interested in, uh, in counterculture and uh, your involvement with it from an early age, I believe. Well, um, in my case, it's probably a direct... I, I can trace it directly back to Cream Magazine. Cream Magazine was a 70s uh, rock magazine. It was one of maybe th- a handful, three or four magazines, like Rolling Stone or um, Circus uh, Magazine, which Howard Bloom, incidentally, was an editor of <laughs> Circus Magazine. But um, Cream Magazine was um, edited, or one of the main contributors was Lester Bangs. And so when I was a kid, I loved his writing. And it seemed that Lester Bangs knew about all the cool stuff to me. You know, I was, I'm probably about 10 years old when I was picking this magazine up at a grocery store. Hmm. You know, my parents would be shopping for groceries, and I would just stand by the magazine stand and, and read these magazines. And eventually my, I could convince my mother to start to buy them for me so I could get these magazines, which were weekly, as I recall. Um, circus was, certainly. But um, with Cream, <clears throat> you had Lester Bangs telling you what all the cool things were. And if you if you trusted his taste, and certainly I did, you sort of started looking for more of those things. And and so he was a, an early uh, proponent of the Velvet Underground when no one knew who they were. Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, um, uh, Public Image Limited, and, and things like this. So um, if you followed Lester Bangs, it, it sort of spread out from there. And also when I'm about 12 years old, punk rock, about 11, 12 years old, punk rock starts to happen. So that's another sort of counterculture. And also, um, in used bookstores in my hometown, I, you, would, you would find the classic works of 60s counterculture. I mean, you could buy a copy of Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book, you know, if you didn't want to steal it, for about a dime. <laughs> you could buy William Burroughs books very cheaply, Timothy Leary books. I mean, that, these were just the remnant books of, you know, the last great, you know, sort of reader's generation, hmm. you know what I mean? That kind of stuff was available to me, and I could get it in the library as well. And that's where I discovered Crowley and things like this. Obviously, you kind of remained you know, interested in this culture, and I think, didn't you move to England at some point? I, when I was 17, I got kicked out of high school, and I went to see, I went to New York to stay with this girl. I knew this friend of mine and, um, at her college, and I, I went to see a pill concert hmm. in Staten Island. I saw Public Image Limited, the original band, and it was such a bizarre thing to see, such a bizarre and, you know, apocalyptic, you know, art form to witness, <laughs> in its, in its, to witness that live. I mean, they were an insanely powerful band, and he was ex- an extremely satanic, demonic uh, onstage presence, and the crowd was very strange. Was, you know, I mean, I grew up in West Virginia, so I didn't really see, you know, weird people, weirdos, you know, that much, but, you know, so when I went to New York, it was a really eye-opening thing, and I remember thinking at the time, like, the world's going to end within 10 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so why do I want to go to college? So I ended up going to Amsterdam for a while. And um, 
lived in the squatters' culture there for a while, and then I went to live in England, where I was also part of the squatters' culture in um, South London, in Brixton. I know there was kind of a quite a strong kind of zine culture there as well in in that period. Were you kind of a, a part of that at all? Uh, oh, and I wasn't a part of it, no, but I was really young. I was only 17, but mm. I was a consumer of it. I was uh, an avid consumer. I mean, every, every Wednesday I would run out and buy the enemy sounds and um, Melody Maker, and I was, uh, would often go down to the Rough Trade store um, on Portobello Road mm. and buy the fanzines that you could get there. But it was, a, it was very, like, I mean, at that point, the only, the, I mean, the only fanzine that I can remember thinking, wow, this is, like, really good, this is amazing, something that you would want to emulate was Vague, mm. Tom Vague's magazine. Which was which was incredible, and that's one of the first places where you could, um, you know, read interviews with Genesis Peorage or Robert Anton Wilson, and um, you could read about conspiracy theories there. You know what I mean? And, and a lot of good bands. So that was a I, I thought that was a really formative, you know, influence on me. Yeah. Okay. So how did you go from uh, I guess being a 17 year old fan of this kind of scene to kind of becoming a I guess a fringe surfer or something or a countercultural critic in some way how did that kind of develop into you know your career in the 90s uh well um i my career ambitions were to be a tv commercial director all right and i and i was directing a lot of music videos and produ- producing more of them and directing some music videos in the in the late 80s and um i, I and, it, and then it uh, one day i um came up with an idea, and, and, and through a series of happenstance that I won't bore you listeners with, I ended up um, with the development deal with the Showtime Network, the cable network over here, and um, that led to me moving out to California, moving to Los Angeles, and um, you know, doing a tour of duty as a you know, producer, pitching my ideas around to various places, you know, finding an agent and, and, then, and doing that kind of thing. And I met Oliver Stone. Uh, through that, and um, he and his partner at the time at Ixland Productions, Janet Yang is her name, they really liked this one idea that I had called Disinformation, and that was a proposal for a TV show that would have been like more of a, a progressive, you know, liberal left, uh, 60 minutes type investigative journalism show. Mm. That was before, you know, that was really before like X-Files or any of that kind of stuff yeah. was in the you know, and so anyway, it got pitched around, and even with Oliver Stone's participation in it, uh, nothing happened with it. I was always quite fascinated with the Infinity Factory because that was quite ahead of its time, really, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it, was it actually streamed live? I can't. I can never actually remember. It was streamed live. Yeah, the Infinity Factory was a um, you know live streaming uh, uh, talk show that I did at a place called Pseudo.com. It was owned by a, a guy named Josh Harris. There's a new documentary out about him called We Live in Public. Mm. He was he was and, and still is a you know a, a, a you know pretty brilliant guy who can really see into the future, mm. not not always to his benefit financially, <laughs> but he is he is, does have quite a visionary sense of where things are going to go with media I think and uh, Josh started this place called Pseudo, and um, I, I was asked to do a talk show there. That's really how it happened. They asked me if I wanted to do a talk show there, and um, I did a sort of Art Bellish counterculture weird culture you know, um, magic uh, kind of talk show there for about two and a half years, maybe. 
and um, and then that led to the show that I did for Channel 4. So what would you say your personal definition of counterculture is? The idea of being against the culture, right, mm. counterculture. Okay, it implies it's sort of a binary thing, right? So that means there's two types of people, the type that like progress mm. and the type who are afraid of progress, right? And you, you see that politically, you know what I mean? Like a right-wing or conservative government wants things to stay the same. They, they don't want, you know, uh, marriage for gay people. They don't want changes in the drug laws. They don't want uh, women to be able to have abortions. They want a more moral uh, way of governing, you know, or they uh, wish to take, you know, a, a society back to an earlier, more innocent time, mm. right? And then you have the progressive types which say, you know, let's move forward and let's relax and let's all get along and let's not have wars anymore. You know what I mean? And then, you, again, you have people who are more fearful of change and they react in a fearful way. They are, have a more of a tendency to want to make, make or support wars. Mm. Yeah. Kind of and, um, and then you have the types who, you know, again, say, wow, let's, let's go and look over that hill. There's going to be something, there might be something really amazing just over that mountain range. And then there's, the, the, again, the types that say, wait a minute, there could be something really fearful on the other side of that. Yeah. You know? And that's why you have it. I mean, it, it, you can see the way that people line up uh, on, uh, along these lines and why, you know, religious people or more conservative people are against, like, biotech mm. and cloning and things like that because it's, it's, to them it's, it's things are getting out of control. Mm. It's not the way they want it to be. And again, so I, 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 it, it really comes down to those who, who wish for progress and those who would like to slow progress down or indeed turn the clock back to an earlier time. So it's almost kind of broadened more than, I mean, it used to be small groups going against a specific thing. Nowadays, it's literally just two enormous groups of people almost. <laughs> I think so. I mean, if you want to look, look at it in, you know, in terms of like, you know, okay, in this circle, this represents yeah, you know, yeah. the amount of people who feel this way, it probably is more leaning now towards the people who want progress. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, in America, there was a, I think there was just such an exasperation after eight years of, of George Bush that the pendulum swung very far mm. in the other direction, you know, and, um, and, and, and I think that that's, that's probably a trend that will continue just because of the demographics. You know what I mean? You're not, mm. just, you know, America is, is a less white nation than it used to be. And so, the, you know, the older, gray-haired, white gentlemen of the Republican Party are getting put out the pasture. What I really wanted to kind of talk to you about was uh, after a conversation we had last time we spoke, um, which was uh, looking at the kind of that particular scene in the 90s and what it was that drew all these kind of... Uh, I guess these fringe cultures and you know this kind of countercultures together into one what seemed to be a kind of melting pot at the time. I mean, was this just the work you were doing at the time, or was it just just complete coincidence that things like I don't know, like the X Files came out and that was huge, and I guess interest in Rob Anton Wilson suddenly increased again, and uh, Douglas Rushkoff's books came out, and uh, there was just seemed to be something about that particular period of time that brought all these kind of fringe cultures together. I was wondering if you could kind of you know maybe speculate on what caused that well I, I, part of it was a, was the zine culture part of it was mondo 2000 magazine in particular mm. the editorial policy there of course are you and um others uh you know created something around themselves because they wanted to do something interesting mm. you know and they wanted to meet cool people so um that's i think was a big uh factor in things and then of course the internet and um 
uh, and as well as um, I think a pre-millennial tension that was in the culture. I think there was a, a lot of people were thinking that the world was going to end, whatever you know, those kind of things that happen at the end of the millennium or the hmm. end of the hundred. Bit like the twenty twelve thing now, I guess. Yeah, exactly. This, the twenty the twenty twelve thing is a is a is an echo of that. I don't I don't think it's that huge of a thing myself, but. Um, you know, God bless people if they want to believe in that stuff. But um, <laughs> the other thing was um, this premillennial tension and people um, looking forward to, <laughs> looking forward to some kind of apocalyptic thing, you know, <laughs> Y2K or any of these kind of things. And um, that always happens in culture, but it was interesting to watch it, um, you know, for the first time, obviously, electronically, where people can get it all over the world. So that kind of meme spread around. There was a... Um, a militia-type movement that was going on in America at that point, that if it would have become stronger, it could have been a real problem mm. over here. But it, it sort of fizzled out. But those were all the sort of, you know, pre... the things that were sort of leading up to the, the, the change of the millennium. And I think that was also something that contributed to it. So do you think the millennium could have also kind of killed it in a way, that it was this kind of big letdown when nothing happened, and <laughs> it kind of uh, drew people back away from these things again, or...? Well, it could have, but I mean, it sort of pops the bubble, doesn't it? When you know, when it's January second, and we're all still here, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, things can happen in 2012, you know, 23rd of the month, but of December. But uh, um, it, it I, yeah, it did. I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that happened just after the turn of the millennium was talking to some people who had been, you know, sort of real proponents of like, you know, that the Y2K thing was going to come down. Mm. And, you know, that would be the, you know, the start of some, you know, some serious uh, troubles for humanity. And um, one person that I talked to about that, it's interesting, was um, philosopher Peter Russell. And, and he said he started to wonder to himself why it was that he was looking forward to that. Mm. After it didn't happen, he was wondering why, you know, why, why he was emotionally invested in the idea that it should happen, yeah. but he wished it would happen. I've heard that from a number of people, but I mean, Peter Russell's a particularly deep man mm. to, you know, to voice something like that. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, um, what, you know, what were people looking for? You know, I mean, one time I had a conversation with Timothy Leary. I was a really big Terrence McKenna head at the time, and I remember asking him what he thought about Terrence McKenna, and he indicated that they really didn't know each other that well. They'd met in passing. And, um, but the thing that Leary said was, he was he's a high Episcopalian. Hmm. And what he meant by that was that McKenna, by being raised in an Episcopal church and an apocalyptic Book of Revelations-type tradition, right, Hmm. That that imprinted him on an early age, in an early age, and he was looking the whole 2012 thing for him, and this trend was, was his way of you know sort of regurgitating that. Yeah, right. And, and that's a fascinating thought. Hmm. And yeah. so you can really put Terence McKenna into immediate perspective by that looking at him through that lens. During the time you uh, you were kind of reporting on these kind of fringe cultures, you obviously probably got to meet quite a few of your. I guess your countercultural heroes, as it were, and I mean, what was that like? Can you talk about that at all? Interesting. Oh, it's always interesting to meet someone that you've idolized, and uh, even more interesting to sort of poke around their refrigerator. <laughs> but um, uh, let's see. Um, I, I met William Burroughs. Um, Burroughs, I met at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and at that time, 
he was, oh, this must have been like 96. It was a, the opening of his exhibit, the Ports of Entry hmm. exhibit there, of his paintings and, and stuff. And um, he was really, really old. I mean, he clearly did not take care of himself. There was a lot of mileage on his body. <laughs> and, um, his back, I mean, talk about, a, you know, sort of writer's hunch. His, his spine was shaped like a question mark. I mean, he really was a hunchback at that point, and um, he was walking around the gallery. I, there was a gallery tour, and he there were probably about thirty people, myself included, just sort of following him around as he walked around the gallery. Where they were they were hanging the show at the last minute, so they opened it up. He's walking in for the first time, and in some cases there were pieces there that he hadn't seen in, in quite a while. But it was he was so old he would just sort of take his cane, gesture towards a painting, and then say, Ah, oh, yeah, I remember this one. <laughs> and then keep moving. I mean, that was about as deep as it got. There was no, there were no real insights to be gained, but just, no, I, I, I remember this, mm. and that was about the extent of his mutterings. And um, uh, let's see, Allen Ginsberg. Um, Ginsberg, uh, you know, I, you know, you always hear stories about how friendly he was and helpful and, and great. I, for me, Ginsberg was just always a horny guy. You know what I'm saying? And I really didn't have anything to offer him, so. You know, I didn't really connect with him on that level, but I, I have met him several times. And um, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, um, I knew quite well, and um, you know, was I you know got emails from him on almost a daily basis as part of his little group. And um, but I've been to Bob's house many times and uh, interviewed him many times. And of all the people that uh, you know, heroes of mine who I've met, I would say certainly he was the one who didn't disappoint. I know Doug feels the same way about it. Um, he was an awesome guy, you know what I mean? He was, he was a really swell person mm. and a smart, wise person, and he was funny, and he was really everything that you would expect him to be. There wasn't a whole lot different about Bob in person that you don't see when you see him being interviewed or see him giving a speech or, you know, these videotapes that you see. But... Um, he, he was great, and um, I remember one point I was there, maybe it was the last time I saw him, and I remember him asking, he was, you know, like a lot of old people who were in pain, he was he was kind of like uh, grumpy at times. You couldn't, you know, it's not like you could go there and, you know, have him talking for four hours. He would get mm. tired and testy, but and I remember he was always asking me, like, I'm not, do I act like a grumpy old man? Do I? <laughs> Tell me the truth. I, I just have to know. I know you'll be honest with me. <laughs> you know, and of course I wasn't. But, um, but you know, it, but he was always great to see. And let's see, who else? Um, Terrence McKenna. Uh, Terrence McKenna, he was always really high. Hmm. And I think that he, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, I am too, but he's a, <laughs> he's a huge marijuana aficionado. And um, I think that there were times when it made him testy hmm. as well. I have to say, there, um, I, didn't, I didn't always have the, the feeling that he necessarily respected the people who would go to see him speak. Yeah, that's a shame. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, it was like a, a bit of a chore for him for these, like, I mean, I'd, I'd see him on, like, these weekend retreats with Terrence McKenna, you know, things like that. Um, a couple times, and um, he, you know, he was friendly, but it was in a very perfunctory way. Hmm. Best way to put it. And um, but you know, brilliant and Terrence McKenna. But like I say, I think he 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 wasn't necessarily as friendly as you might imagine him to be. Um, now, Timothy Leary. Here's a good story for you, um, Timothy Leary. I had gone to Timothy. Le I'd met Leary several times over the years, but I, you know, like you know, people, someone in his position meets a lot of people once. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. But I, you know, so he doesn't, he, it's not like he remembered me in any one of these times, but um, 
the first time that I really got to sit down and talk with him for one-on-one for a long period of time was in 96, and I was going to produce a documentary about him with a CD-ROM component. This was back, you know, in the CD-ROM days, so and yeah. Oliver Stone was an executive produce that, and I sat and talked to him for quite a while, and um, this was about maybe, I guess, about a week before he announced that he had cancer. He was he was pretty lucid at the time, but could also become quite out of it, you know, pretty mm. quickly. But with me, he was concentrating on what I had to say because he knew that I knew a lot about him, and um, he was impressed in that way. But um, so I, I I had just moved to Los Angeles, or just and had just moved into a new apartment. Indeed, uh, I think that day or the day before. So my phone was hooked, just hooked up. And I get home, and the phone's beeping, and I pick it up, and lo and behold, the first person to call me and leave a message on my voicemail was none other than Dr. Timothy Leary himself, my idol since I'm a teenager. <laughs> and so I'm listening to this call, just grinning, and I realize he's calling me up because he wants to borrow six grand. Wow. <laughs> That's a true story. That's quite... What did he want it for? Or can you not... <laughs> I, I haven't... You know, I, I don't know. He, I mean, he must have thought I was rich. Yeah, that's uh, that's something to. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. You know, I didn't I didn't respond to it, and I thought, you know, he's not even going to remember he did this tomorrow. <laughs> I just, there was never any further discussion of it. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I think one thing. I mean, from that period, one speech that always kind of uh, kind of resonated with me, at least, was the one the kind of keynote speech. I guess you can call it. You did at the DisinfoCon. Was that in New mm-hmm. York? I think wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. But, yeah, and uh, you basically talked about how, I think the line you use is, you've seen the Illuminati and it's us, you know, the, you're, you're addressing the crowd at the time. And you also say about how, the, you know, how you should go and grab as much money as you possibly can and kind of corrupt from the inside out almost. <laughs> um, did, yeah. did, did that happen, in your opinion? In what sense? I mean, did other people um, uh, do that kind of thing? Did I mean, would you say that these kind of countercultural types at, at that period in time did become part of the kind of, I guess, the mainstream media and the mainstream psych, that group psyche that was around at the time. Did that in any way kind of impregnate into the mainstream culture? Sure. I mean, there's, a, I mean, if you look around at, at what kind of culture is going on right now in 2009, there are a lot of extremely subversive uh, artists, you know, or, or, or communicators or musicians who um, have found themselves mainstream platforms. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, uh, a good example of, of that uh, is Boing Boing. You know what I mean? Here yeah, you have definitely. The most successful, you know, if you will, underground magazine of all time. Mm. You know, and it's yeah. a direct, it's a direct International Times or Oz Magazine or, or Cream Magazine or, and it, you know, it's, it, it came out of zine culture and now it's this huge thing that you know millions of people look at and it's it's a meme machine. You know what I mean? If, mm. if Boing Boing links to you, you have a tremendous amount of attention that, that is, as, is bestowed upon, you know, what your activity. And, um, uh, you know, Maranson obviously had, had quite a run of it and, and still is, you know, in, in putting out very subversive anti-religious messages. South Park uh, does that, you know. Um, there's any number of, um, you know, counterculture or heavily influenced by the counterculture um, things in England, like uh, the Mighty Boosh ideal, mm. you know what I mean, all these kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. you know, uh, there's no way that you would have had like a, you know, a pot dealer 
uh, hero in a show. But of course, we have weeds and, like I say, ideal Johnny Vegas and ideal. So mm. you know those kinds of things. I mean, they, it, it, it's all it's progress, isn't it? I mean, it just it just sort of moves forward, and you know, there's always a change of the guard. I mean, as well, like so, you know, people get old enough that and have, they're taken seriously enough by you know Time Warner or you know BBC or whoever, they start to get more money. And, um, and, you know, and these kind of ideas have a deeper penetration in the culture. Yeah. So, I mean, would you say in the way that counterculture has always become, the, at least the word, has kind of become perhaps passe in the internet culture? I do. I don't, I don't tend to, to use that term much anymore. It, do, it does feel like, a, you know, kind of a last century thing to me. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not, um, just times have moved on. You know what I mean? It's, it's like... Uh, you know, looking at somebody who's wearing a tie-dyed T-shirt, you know what I mean, or or has a, you know a safety pin <laughs> through their ear. I mean, it's it's it is passe, and um, to me, it, you know, it, it's it's sort of is bookended on one end by you know jazz era beat generation hippie types, and then cyber culture and conspiracy culture, gene culture, uh, you know, that reach, reaches its full flower, mm. you know, in approximately 1999. Yeah. You know, after that, after that, it becomes, you know, all of these, all, all of these elements, I guess, just become so, you know, they just become such a, a part of the bigger mix that it becomes a homogenized thing. Mm, you know, there, there's no longer islands of counterculture, but, but just only one kind of culture. And, yeah. and, that, and, the, and there's no consensus reality anymore anyways, because, you know, I mean, the, if you look at, just look at the pop charts. I mean, how many number one singles are there that you've never heard? Mm. There's so there's no mainstream culture anymore. Only if you choose to go that way. If you choose something else, you, you may never have heard of what, you know, millions of people are buying. Seriously, yeah. I, I honestly I could, I could not hum a single Mariah Carey song if I wanted to. No, I know what you mean. It's it's become a lot easier to switch that stuff off now, hasn't it? Almost. It's uh, you know you don't have to consume that. It's not it's shoved in your face still, but it's very. It, for some reason, it feels a lot easier to just switch off and create your own kind of uh you can watch what you want to watch you can listen to what you want to listen to these days and it's all available which is kind of uh it's kind of a change to that era i suppose and yes indeed and it's it's why marketing and advertising are are on the decline Mm. it's much 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 harder to market to somebody who's skeptical and who has um an active uh intelligence and wants to seek out their own you know programming they don't want to be programmed from by somebody else. They want to program themselves. Hmm. And again, all of that's a direct legacy of, of all of this kind of stuff too. I mean, you know, if you look at how the internet evolved, I mean, you know, the idea of the, you know, the sort of like, you know, acid dropping hacker, and, you know, and that you have in from, you know, the '90s, you know, the, the Mondo 2000 reading acid dropping hacker. I mean, you know, that's a those guys did go on to, you know, by the time that that person at the age of 25 becomes, a, you know, a, a successful 40 year old executive. You know what I mean? In these Silicon Valley companies, you're seeing a direct that you're seeing that energy feeding into uh, technology as well. So, all of these things are, you know, they contribute to a certain kind of progress. One thing that I've always um, <clears throat> found interesting, I actually spoke to Doug about this as well, was, uh, do you, as someone that's kind of you know analyzed magic yourself, you know, and kind of uh, these kind of occult groups, how are they going to be affected by this kind of openness on the internet? I mean, it's they, I mean, they seem to exist 
purely to kind of keep knowledge secret almost you know there's this initiatory system you're meant to go through blah 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 are they going to be able to i'm quite interested in your take on this are they going to be able to survive the internet first off those you know magical organizations or you know uh you know in particular sort of like the crowley you know oto kind of strand of magical organizations. I mean, those people, if you really got right down to it, have never had, I mean, their moment is now, I mean, in the sense of historically, there are more people who know about Crowley or, you know, who want to have a, an image of Alistair Crowley on their MySpace page at the very least, you know, that mm. kind of thing, <laughs> and probably at any point in history. But, um, uh, you know, how relevant it is, I don't know. It's, I, you know, I mean, obviously, the, you know, p- the number of people who are interested in that kind of thing or say they are interested in that kind of thing has grown. Um, I don't, on the other hand, I, you know, addressing the way you phrased the question, I don't know that they, they can, in the age of the Internet, keep their secrets. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the initiatory information that you would, you know, that would have been bestowed upon, you know, a seeker, you know, you know 15 <laughs> years ago, 20 years ago, that's now, I mean, you can download that stuff now. I mean, you know, it's, it's no secret that if anybody's looking for the, you know, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the top secret OTO documents or the things that, uh, Francis King published in his book about the OTO that you know that you can't you know supposedly can't buy on eBay because the OTO just like slapped the sellers down. Mm. Uh, you can download that on a PDF. I mean, one classic example of this, uh, and I was talking to Doug about this as well, was uh, Scientology versus Anonymous, and I thought this was a kind of a good way to kind of look at perhaps the future of if there is a future of counterculture that this might be at this kind of uh, chaotic leaderless kind of open source activist group that kind of anonymous was is that going to be our future i mean when it comes to looking at counterculture and activism and this kind of thing is is anonymous the new i guess blueprint for that no not necessarily i mean it, yeah it's it's one mm. it's one of them i mean in, in the terms of like the sort of flash mob self-organizing autonomy that that you know of, you know just basically putting up some kind of communication wiki on the internet can provide but um uh, and once those kind of things get, you know, the push, they sort of self-power themselves. But there's also going to be charismatic, you know, leaders, and quote unquote. Um, there'll be, you know, people like, you know, Glenn Beck over here with his sort of, you know, right-wing media militia, and you know, these these ridiculous teabagging parties that you hear about, and, and so forth. I mean, these are all the kinds of things that, you know, just come out of internet technology and mm. i think that yeah there'll be more of that and there'll be different manifestations and similar manifestations to anonymous versus scientology but i think by and large it seems to me that you know it's it's their media personalities will be the ones that spearhead that kind of thing not not the anonymity but media spearhead yeah, yeah. and there's a real reason for anonymous to remain anonymous they don't want to be prosecuted or persecuted themselves <laughs> you know by you know, Scientology. So yeah, definitely. It makes sense for them to do their thing anonymously. Not, it's not going to make sense for every goal or aim that a, a, a certain group might have. Yeah. So I mean, could, I mean, we've obviously looked at some kind of models already, but I mean, can you predict kind of if there will ever be that kind of return to the kind of aggregation of these cultures again, or is it all gone into this kind of chaotic internet ether now? Or, do you reckon there'll be any kind of new yeah. movements? Well, I, I think, you know, I would say, look at it like, you know, you've got, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of rocks that are sort of, you know, going around in a tumbler, and eventually they're just breaking down and breaking down and breaking down. You could look at, 
you know, the breakdown in attitudes towards, you know, marijuana smoking or, or drugs or um, gay marriage or free love or, you know, any of these things. I mean, if, you know, mm-hmm. it's obviously a very different world than it was in 1950, you know. And, as, and, and, and there's, you can't discount counterculture, classical counterculture. Again, the beats, jazz generation, the hippies, you know, Timothy Leary and Abby Hoffman and all of that you know, uh, generation who, who contributed to all of this. And, but I mean, once those barriers are broken down, it's highly unlikely that there's, we're going to come, you know, and go back in time to some kind of repressive time of, you know, you know, marijuana smokers are incarcerated or gays or have no, you know, civil rights and this kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think it's unlikely. I think it's very unlikely that it would ever become some sort of thing where you could say, oh, this is the counterculture. I think it's, it's too balkanized hmm. at this point that it will never go back to that, no. Yeah. Could you talk a, a little bit about this uh, chat show you're doing at the moment? Uh, not chat show. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a chat show, I suppose. Well, um, I um, got interested in, in uh, doing a talk show again, you know, oh. and um, I shot a pilot with Johnny Knoxville. Mm. friend of mine and um when i was guest blogging at boing boing i put that up and um you know i was i was you know heartened by the reaction to it and then i decided to shoot a couple of more um the i was somewhat close to a deal with a a few television entities but all of it fell through and it just left me even more wanting to do this so now i'm doing it on my own and um every once in a while it'll be something that will be um on boing boing video as well so which is great so i think i'm I'm probably gonna do one maybe record one once a week that's a good idea all right so uh, i could definitely recommend the listeners check that out because whenever richard seems to point us to something it tends to be very interesting but anyway thanks a lot for coming on and i really appreciate you giving us some more of your time oh sure thing all right and we're back uh that was uh, richard metzger obviously um what did you think of what mr metzger had to say kim the very interesting guy yeah with with quite a quite an address book as well yeah seems to know everyone <laughs> address, but you know like a contact uh, contact book yeah i'd like to have his uh his address book <laughs> <laughs> i sound like a stalker yeah yeah actually that's true <laughs> but yeah i think it kind of throws it into context doesn't it like uh, if you're looking back at the scene it kind of throws into context how this all came together in some ways how um this information was being presented to us by by Richard, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I'm not a countercultural uh, expert by any means. It, most of the stuff uh, I'm hearing about for the first time, um, but uh, it's obviously you know you can understand a lot of what he's saying about um, classic counterculture and uh, how it relates to the kind of '90s version that he was a part of, um, and he sort of uh, how how much a part of it just people are you know personalities mm, yeah. a little bit you know guru like um if you like yeah like charismatic leaders kind of thing and uh, hopefully you know more guru in the in terms of thinking rather than religious cult type people yeah i agree i think the other thing i found interesting what he said was uh he's talking about the pre-millennium tension there was this sort of fear that the world oh, when that the world was going to end and that perhaps everyone was you know people were turning into these kind of fringe ideas as a kind of get out almost you know as a kind of a way of explaining their fear almost and uh I'll be actually interested to see, we're kind of touching it a little bit, I think, where we say, we talk about 2012 and there's this rising group of people online that are all yeah. coming together again. And it seems 
very similar to that to me, if that makes sense. It seems like a repeat almost in some ways of the uh, of the Y2K instance of the you know the kind of end of the world in 2000 kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. I wonder, I wonder which if... is also going on right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's something that seems to recur, uh, actually. Uh, everyone seemed to think the world was going to end. The Greeks, uh, apparently, for onwards, just about every society thought they were the last people, you know, they were going to see the civilised world. So, um, hopefully it's not something, it's something you know, it's just something about, you know, the, the short-term lives of people that means we expect the sky to fall on our heads. So one other thing I found really interesting, um, and this is a theory I've always had, is that the people using the internet at the time of, all, of this kind of countercultural explosion were a certain type of person. <laughs> Nowadays, everyone's on the internet. Everyone uses it for shopping, Facebook, etc. But back in the day, it was a kind of the early adopters, if you will, of the internet were a certain type of people that were kind of a slightly nerdy, I guess. Uh, actually, that's a bit, maybe been a bit rude, but you know, what I mean, there was, was a kind of. Uh, the type of people that would have been into the counterculture were the type of people uh, using the internet because at the time the internet was almost a counterculture in itself so um, the person I really wanted to talk to about this in particular and about counterculture generally and about this whole thing was uh, Douglas Rushkoff who we've had on the show before on episode 20 Um, Doug's a brilliant guy and uh, yeah check it out and I think he has some really interesting points the battle that the counterculture always has is how easily it's uh self-definition can turn into more of a style statement than anything else. So if there's, you know, a counterculture that's both, you know, it's both an artistic movement or a, 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 a sort of cultural movement as well as a real socio-political or economic movement, um, what the overculture or the mainstream culture would do, you know, just out of necessity would be to try to turn the movement into a statement of style, you know, to turn grunge into flannel shirts or to turn, you know, hippies into long hair Mm. or to turn, you know, punk into blue hair. Um, In some ways, the fact that 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 started to happen so quickly, that that process happened so fast that it was impossible to develop a counterculture with any kind of almost artistic style of its own, it's, it's, forced people who really want change to do it in in some cases in a in a simpler less romantic way mm-hmm. you know that change people want now is you know is economic change to be able to print their own money to exchange things directly to develop alternative energy to grow vegetables on land things that there's laws against doing yeah. um, so a counterculture in New York is someone who grows chard on land that's been set aside for corn you know, or someone in the UK who tries to stop pavement from from being, you know, poured or cement being poured over his whole town to make way for a new road. You know, or um, someone who decides that rather than wanting to make a whole big pot of money and then investing it for retirement, wants to actually have a sustainable career as a member of a community that will support him through his old age. Mm-hmm. You know, any of these kinds of ideas is actually truly and dangerously counterculture. So um, I, I, think that's, I think that's all good. So while counterculture might have been sort of an extension of the zine, um, zine indie art punk movement in the early internet days, that, that the rapidity with which uh, anything meaningful could be absorbed by the system and then spat out as something uh, uh, 
without any teeth and completely worthless has forced those who are truly counterculture to go into much more direct styles of activism. Mm. Okay, so in in the 90s, uh, especially, there seemed to be this kind of aggregation or kind of um, uh, this convergence of all these different countercultures into one kind of, I I guess, kind of concise group almost. There was a a good example of that's the disinformation website at the time that there was it, it would it wouldn't just be activisty kind of counterculture it would also be conspiracy kind of counterculture it would also be UFO kind of counterculture as well could you explain or at least ponder what what um what, why do you think that happened then I don't think it did you don't I mean think? I think disinfo was really um by modern standards it was one of the first websites yeah. You know, back then, there were really only 10 or 20 websites that, that people could name, and Disinfo was one of them. So Disinfo had to serve a much wider community than considered itself a community, mm. I think. Um, and even um, if you go to, you know, the, you look at DisinfoCon, um, what made, uh, on the one hand, what made all those things relevant to one another is that Richard had managed to find all those people. You know what I mean? Yeah, it yeah. was it, it was person by person. You know, he met me, and through me, he met Tim Leary. He met um, I forgot. You know, he met someone else, and that's how he met you know Oliver Stone. And through Oliver Stone, he met this one. You know, it, it's like um, it's it's just Richard in his travels. He collects people and ideas and. And he's interested in a whole bunch of different things. Disinfo is as much, or is no more, a reflection of our counterculture than it is a reflection of one mem- one genius member of our counterculture. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm. I think it's more interesting is that's the threads that he drew, that he drew together. If you look at Are You Serious, you see another great genius visionary's uh, touchstones. You know, you look at Mondo 2000 and Reality Hackers. Who did he find? You know, he found everyone from, you know, he was more interested in, in some scientists and physicists and mathematicians. I mean, you don't really see Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake or, uh, uh, you know what I mean, Richard Dawkins and those kind of people you don't see on Disinfo, but you do see them in Mondo 2000 and Life Extension and, you know, John Lilly and sort of goes more into that, into that uh, corner of things. Mm. So, you know, I think it's, it's, all, it's all who you look at. I mean, I do agree that with the beginning of the internet, a lot of different cultures that had been distinct became more closely related to each other. So you had fantasy role game people, meet computer people, meet fractal people, meet deadheads, meet ravers, meet hip-hop people. Mm. And you had a lot of media come up, like Herb Magazine. You could as easily say Herb Magazine as Disinfo. So what was Herb, the URB Herb? Herb was a crossover between rave and hip-hop, sort of envisioning that those two cultures could be linked. And, and you know, God bless him, you know, Todd Roberts or Rio Ro- Roker or whoever it was that, that was responsible for that. Um, Raymond Roker? Yeah, I think it's Raymond, was a, wasn't it? Yeah. Raymond Roker, I think he was a partner on that. Mm. You know, they did weave two countercultures together or two cultures together into you know, into sort of a crossover thing. So, you know, the the collectors and archivists and uh, you know, 
cultural provokers. Um, they're really good at bringing those strains together. Yeah, I, mean, I guess the other thing, I mean, the only exception I'd have to that would be that a lot of the publications and um, uh, I guess films and te- television shows coming out at the time all seem to come out at the same sort of time, if that makes sense. So suddenly you had a kind of re... Um, a lot of people starting to read Robert Anton Wilson again at that point. You also had uh, The X-Files, for example, coming on the TV. Uh, you had uh, your books starting to come out, The Media you know, media Virus and uh, what was it? Oh, Siberia, both coming out. They all seem to come around at the same kind of period of time in the kind of mid to late 90s where that couldn't have all just been Richard Metzer, surely, <laughs> if you could if it was. No, I mean, there was a burst of, of enthusiasm for weird things mm. toward the end of the 90s, and that's because something new was thrown into the mix, and that was really the computer and, the, yeah, and networks. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. without computers and networks, I don't think you would have seen the psychedelic revival that we saw. Yeah. You know, you know computers and networks plus acid test leads to Ray. Computers and networks plus psychedelics leads to time wave zero computers and networks plus fantasy you know dungeons and dragons leads to online massive massively you know muds and massive role-playing so you throw in something there you get a revival just like when you threw lsd into the counterculture you got the hippies Mm. so yeah every 10 or 20 years or something new a real new thing comes into the mix and leads to what I was calling a renaissance. I mean, in 1991, I posted this thing on the well, which turned into Siberia, and it was called Renaissance Now. And I asked, you know, are we in the midst of a new renaissance, Hmm. you know, where all of these old ideas are reborn again in the new context of, you know, cybernetics or cyberculture? And that, you know, and I I think, yeah, you know, even in in the Japanese version of Siberia on the cover, it says 60s plus 90s equals Siberia. (laughs) <laughs> so they were seeing it as, you know, the cyber thing is a 60s revival, you know, made possible because of uh, the techno things. Now you have techno shamanism, techno this, techno that. So it's almost as if the the reason it happened maybe was because of the type of people that were accessing the internet at the time, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, the kinds of people who were, I always talk about this, you know, they're the only two kinds of people who were were qualified to be designing the, the virtual realm were children and psychedelics people because both of them were comfortable with, uh, you know, hallucinatory realities. Both groups were comfortable seeing the things that they imagined, you know, whereas most adults were still afraid of that sort of the awesome power of, of a hallucinatory realm like cyberspace. Yeah. So would you say that cyberspace killed or renewed counterculture then in the long run? <laughs> um, I don't think it killed anything. No, I think it. I think it led to a, a great revival. I think it led to an increase in the accessibility of, you know, really esoteric things. You know, this what networking does is bring the outside in and the inside out. So you know, and both those things are are deeply countercultural urges. Mm. You know, so you know, the, both the esoteric and the exoteric urge are are you know, part of that sort of Gnostic countercultural tradition. So the Internet's ability to bring the most arcane Aleister Crowley chant into the hands of any curious 14-year-old without him passing through any rites and rituals is countercultural to the core. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think, uh, I mean, going back onto that, do you think that the groups that up until that point uh, that have tried to maintain the stuff as kind of initiatory secrets almost, I mean, like, for example, the Golden Dawn or the ATO, are they going to have to adapt to this? I mean, because they don't seem to be at the moment. They're kind of adapting to a, a new cyber age where information like that is just going to be freely accessible to everybody. Well, it's interesting. It depends what their purpose is. If they're genuinely dealing with esoteric knowledge, then they should not adapt. They should stay on land, and and you know the the less uh, you know the less they share, you know, then then the more guarded and and you know and mysterious and secreted and in some sense valuable and scarce their information. Mm. You know, the question is whether in a truly cybernetic age people will value things that are made artificially scarce or whether they'll even believe that something might be scarce hmm. you know where where and i and i do think that there's a, a, a potential loss of value and sanctity in the flesh you know or for the flesh that some of these secret societies might uh you know perversely be uh, uh protecting hmm. Yeah. You know, not everything, not everything is of equal weight. Not everything should be a single Boolean Google search away. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, a, a good example of that would be, um, I guess, Scientology recently and the, the trouble they've been having with Anonymous. Uh, that there was a classic case of trying to keep information withheld from the public and then the public getting hold of it and. Uh, it, it, you know, it started a movement, really. I mean, it's still going to this day. I mean, do you have any perspective on the... Uh, well, um, my, honest, my honest perspective on it, and it's not the one that I'm supposed to have, is that it's all bullshit. <laughs> all of it. That any mystery, any secret of a religion or a society or a thing is simply a an intellectual lock that has been created by um, an elite class and they try to make the lock complicated enough that it takes so long to open the lock that by the time you have, you are one of the initiates protecting the lock yourself. Mm. In other words, if you've made the 10, 20, 30, 40 year commitment to open that lock, to decrypt the, the great Bible code or whatever it is in your secret society, that by the time you've gotten there, um, you have a stake in preserving it. I think that, that the more we reveal, the more that we, um, un- the more that we pick these locks and share what we found with each other, the less and less hold these mysteries will have over us. I don't believe there actually are any mysteries at all. Mm-hmm. And I think almost any time spent um, pondering or, or uh, uh, working to decode a mystery is time that could have better been spent loving. Hmm. Interesting. So, <laughs> I mean, um, okay, I guess going back to kind of the more broader kind of countercultural movements, I mean, in your new book, you talk about uh, MAID and the MAID culture. Do you see that as being a kind of the step forward? Now? I, mean, I guess the kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying, that, that all, the, to be a member of the true counterculture now is as simple as doing something. Mm. You know, really, we live in a society where people want to make money by having money. They want to survive 
by just somehow being. They want to, to receive passive income as investors rather than be active participants in the world in which they live. So anyone doing anything is countercultural now. Mm. You know, what happened was to be cool was, was redefined by the market as to be aloof and to be disconnected and not to participate. And um, to, for that to be your role is the, is the real booby prize. You know, whereas anyone who just wants to make a living and is okay with just making a living mm. um, is, is considered insane these days. Mm, yeah. So it's almost like um, the counterculture is not subscribing to the myth almost. Right. Excellent. Oh, well, thanks a lot for uh, talking with me again today. That was Douglas Rushkoff, and um, I th- again, what did you think of what Mr. Rushkoff had to say, Kim? Well, he's he's always got a, a new, an interesting approach um, to thinking about stuff, and uh, it's a good job you managed to snag him for the show so often. He's a very interesting guy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's a, uh, someone I've been a fan of for a while, like, like I said before. But I always find that he has like really. Um, informative view on everything <laughs> I don't know why it's a, it's a you know it's a it's, it's a it's a good gift to have if you've got it I think what he's saying about uh, that there is no counterculture and it's just something we were just talking about it's that almost the counterculture won in a way if that makes sense Would you? yeah we became the mainstream you know you look at advertising you look at music uh, as he says the, it's everywhere you know the, the subversive the punk you know the punks won, if you like. <laughs> you know the, the hippies and the punks. That mm. they whatever's whatever's underground is is what people want to aspire to. You know, teenagers rebel and eventually they grow up and they adopt that stuff and they they and that's how it happened, I guess. So and they start as he was as he was saying, you know, the right wing Christian, uh, you know, the people that we think maybe represent the mainstream to us are now actually, you know, in the fringes very much in the fringes of, of certainly popular culture and actually the other thing he said that was interesting was how people making money for themselves and you know kind of ignoring the main system is almost the new counterculture you know it's like what what Metzger, uh, richard metzger says in the um in the clip i played just before the interview is that at that point in the 90s rather than kind of rebelling against mainstream culture a lot of these people kind of uh, immersed themselves into the mainstream culture and uh, corrupted from the inside and I think if, that's possibly what Doug was talking about here a little bit and the uh, this idea that now rebelling against that is the counterculture almost <laughs> if that makes sense I don't know it's kind of uh, it's an interesting way of looking at it and um, but I think the next guest we have has a particularly good uh, uh, take on the whole thing and uh, someone that 
I resonate with myself. But one thing I will warn you is that the quality of the recording on this one is a little bit different to the last two. Uh, we had dueling fans <laughs> in our computers just as my computer was breaking down. I think it was like boiling hot where I was talking to the next guest. And uh, so in the background, you'll be able to hear the, the battling fans of two computers, but uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> annoying. But uh, yeah, the next guest, Are You Serious? He's uh, and somebody else that's been on our show, obviously, as, as a primary guest and uh, someone we... Uh, I'm particularly a big fan of it. Again, I grew up reading his uh, his stuff and he's written a fantastic book, which I think everyone should read and buy called uh, Counterculture Through the Ages. So if you go to Amazon, in fact, actually, if you go to the front of City Now, I think we have like an Amazon book thing at the bottom and you can buy it that way, I think. But yeah, uh, this is Are You Serious? And uh, again, we're pretty much asking the same questions, but you know, I think we get a fairly different perspective here. And I think it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Back in uh, 2004, I put out a book called Counterculture Through the Ages from Abraham to Acid House. And in that book, uh, uh, myself and my co-author, Dan Joy, basically defined counterculture as uh, uh, a perennial historical phenomena of uh, anti-authoritarian cultures that uh, also have an antic, playful uh, character to them. And... Uh, uh, they basically transgress uh, the main culture uh, of its time and uh, uh, either uh, just for the heck of it, um, you know, uh, sort of a, a dropout phenomena or just, you know, uh, uh, for, for to have alternative experiences or, or else to actually change the society and uh, push it a little bit uh, towards... Uh, more openness, uh, uh, greater democratization of uh, religion, of uh, spiritual practices, of uh, politics, of uh, uh, within art, um, uh, all all of those things. So um, that, that's how we defined it then. Um, there's another definition of counterculture, uh, which would be any culture that is counter to the mainline culture of the time. Uh, we were talking with uh, Richard Metzger the other day, and he was saying that, uh, in some sense, you could call the uh, religious right a counterculture today. Uh, I go into that in the book, actually. Uh, there, uh, if when I, at that time when I googled counterculture, I think the first or the second thing to come up was a Christian website, uh, right-wing Christian website, and, and they identified themselves as a counterculture uh, because they were in opposition to. Uh, you know, the, the uh, decadent urban uh, society in, in which uh, uh, people are free to have uh, abortions, in which uh, gay rights are, are beginning to uh, come to the fore, uh, in which there's uh, pluralism and uh, free speech and openness to uh, all people to practice uh, any kind of spirituality they want or to be atheists and, and so forth. Mm. So they see themselves as a counterculture, and I mean, from their perspective, the counterculture that most people think of uh, from the 60s and the 70s, or from the 50s with the Beats, uh, uh, is the overculture now. Uh, we we won the culture uh, from their from their perspective, uh, and they see themselves as as a counterculture. I, I tend to think that the word has uh, just about lost meaning at this point. Um, uh, most words have just about lost meaning at this point, but. Uh, um, you know, uh, there's definitely a uh, confusion of signs at, at this point in human uh, history. Mm. So, yeah, I was talking to Richard Metzer about this, and he, we both kind of agreed actually that it, the, the actual phrase almost seems kind of passe now, really. <laughs> I don't know if you agree. Yeah, with that. I, I don't think you, uh, you hear it used a lot. 
Um, you know, I, I do think there are some people who identify themselves as being part of a counterculture, and most of them would be uh, people who uh, relate to uh, what happened with the hippies and the beats. Um, you know, which is fine uh, up to a point. Um, but uh, you know, we we need to uh, be here now, as an uh, <laughs> old hippie once said, and you know, uh, be be looking forward. And, and so I'm not sure how much value uh, talking about or, or thinking about oneself as being in a counterculture has. Um, you know, I never think about it unless somebody asks me. Yeah. I don't, I don't wake up in the morning and think I'm, I'm, I'm a, well, I'm a counterculture person. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a neo-hippie or whatever, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I just kind of go about my day feeling pretty normal in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just 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 another clown uh, caught up in a uh, kleptocracy, basically. <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, one thing. I mean, I guess I, I agree with those points actually <coughs> that there isn't really kind of a, a counterculture anymore as such. But there certainly was one in the '90s. Um, again, <laughs> I, I guess this is probably down to. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in getting your perspective on this. But there was this kind of rise again in kind of almost an aggregation in these kind of different countercultural forces in the 90s and I'm pretty convinced it was probably spurred on by the internet um, and the kind of people on the internet at the time but I don't know if you could maybe discuss that kind of period and maybe maybe you know talk about what you think might have, uh, have caused it. Yeah I, th I think that's true I mean I, I think the the 80s were sort of desultory uh, uh, there didn't seem to be much going on uh, but there were these things that uh, you know the beginnings of uh, uh, dynamic you know, cultural activity that uh, could raise people's spirits uh, that were starting to uh, come to the fore in the 80s and, and you had the uh, the internet culture, um, you know, that the hacker culture and uh, even the mainstream internet culture that was created by a bunch of baby boomer hackers uh, starting in the 70s um, who uh, had an interest in, in psychedelics and in uh, anti-authoritarian ideas and so forth. So you had you had that emerging, and you had the beginnings of the uh, rave culture, um, which is you know uh, you were in a place where uh, you would have experienced it uh, more more than more than I would have. Yeah, in, in yeah. <laughs> um, but you know you had those things uh, beginning to uh, to emerge, and it sort of came to uh, full flowering in, in the nineties. In the early 90s, um, you had the zine scene. Uh, people were using desktop publishing to uh, uh, publish what used to be, or, you know, to do what used to be something really complicated, which would be to publish underground newspapers. Uh, but people were publishing, you know, odd uh, zines uh, from from any uh, number of perspectives. Uh, so uh, there was this sense that the, uh, the means of communications uh, uh, was opening up to everybody and uh, at, at that point, you know, when, when something like that first starts to happen, uh, it's exciting and fun and really dynamic and uh, uh, tends to produce uh, uh, some degree of optimism. Um, you know, once, once we become to, uh, accustomed to uh, the fact that, uh, uh, yes, you know, we can all uh, get online or, or we can all communicate uh, our stuff uh, pretty freely and easily. Uh, it becomes less of a thrill and, and, and the other uh, problems that uh, continue to exist, the, the other uh, oppressive uh, or, or uh, darker aspects of society that continue to exist, uh, uh, you know, 
reappear uh, uh, or, or, or we're reminded that uh, uh, we haven't hacked those problems simply by uh, creating this place and, and being part of this uh, online place. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's been, uh, I've asked the, the, the other two guests on the show, um, and this is uh, something that kind of comes up a lot in our show, and our listeners seem to be really interested in it, is uh, the idea of, like, how is, uh, uh, like, how are initiatory groups, say, like the, I guess, the Golden Dawn or the OTO, these sorts of types of people, how do you see these groups kind of coping with uh, the internet as it gets more and more and more used, I guess, <laughs> these days? And it, it, must, it must be really hard to keep things secret these days. Do you think these groups are going to have to kind of change the way they operate, maybe? Or? I, I mean, I, th- I think there'd be a literal interpretation of a cult, which I means secret, mm. is probably uh, uh, the wrong way to go in general, uh, you know, uh, in regards to, to most things. And, and you know, I, I think the, the energy right now is around transparency and openness and sharing information sharing ideas. I mean, uh, Doug Rushkoff wrote a book about the open source Judaism, um, you know, gain access to the root ideas of, uh, of any, you know, spiritual system or the monetary system or, or any of these things, uh, let everybody gain access to it so they, they can play with it and, and uh, uh, add intelligence to it or, or mess it up or, or you know, uh, do something with it. And I think, I mean, this democratization you mentioned is sort of Krillian groups. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of that stuff started with uh, Robert Anton Wilson very much, you know, uh, not into the idea that, uh, uh, I mean, he, he obviously was into the idea of secret societies in, in the sense of having a lot of fun with them, mm. uh, but uh, not really into the idea of uh, uh, keeping. Uh, these things a cult or, or elite or, or any of those uh, sorts of things. So uh, I, 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 my guess is that there aren't too many people who are really that hung up on uh, trying to maintain secrecy. There is, I mean, there is a tendency, um, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, um, there was this sense um, of a unified counterculture or movement you know, the counterculture, um, and then uh, uh, as it became more clear that uh, these countercultures uh, or, or this counterculture really wasn't going to uh, transform the world to the degree that it hoped to, that there wasn't going to be a revolution or, you know, an age of spiritual enlightenment or, or any of that kind of stuff, uh, people got more into the, uh, into identity and then they got into uh, changing the world. Yeah. Uh, um, and once people got into identity, then uh, they wanted to privilege their own little group, um, and they wanted to reject people who weren't cool enough to uh, come inside their little group and uh, become become a goth or a Crowleyite or uh, you know uh, you know whatever weird obscure you know very sexual underground groups or whatever. Uh, so that it became this thing about maintaining the cultural identity and, and sort of rejecting other people, uh, you know, and not have it diluted, not have it watered down. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that sense, those cultures would become mainstream if they uh, became watered down and too many people participated in it. And there's, I mean, this, this endless dynamic between subcultures and uh, mainstreaming, um, you know, where subcultures are in some sense very fond of their ideas and their principles, but they also jealously 
uh, guard them from becoming too popular. Um, it's, uh, it's it's sort of an ironic and, and odd situation. Yeah, I was talking with Richard Metzi yesterday about the fact that sometimes these say these sort of subcultural groups when um, when their when their their culture becomes kind of popular within the mainstream, they almost seem to kind of reject it as well afterwards. They, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do, is that is that literally just a kind of do you think a a style thing maybe or a, you know like a, a again I, I I think I think it's really about identity. Mm. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, you know uh, uh, once you sort of lose uh, a broader sense of uh, purpose, uh, if there should be such a thing, um, a lot of people go back to identity. And I mean, it, aside from you know becoming part of uh, a, a you know a, a, an odd subculture, say a, a hipster subculture. Uh, people go back to their families' religions. You know, they become conservative, and that's about identity too. Um, you know, they find uh, something to uh, cling to that uh, uh, where they can be part of a club and, and have some def definitive uh, sort of bottom line uh, sense of, of who they are. Uh, so I, I think all those things happen. I think I, one thing I find really interesting there there was this show uh, on America's Science Fiction Network. Um, I think it was this horror house or something, and they would put all these people together to live in a house, and they would have all these, you know, like total subcultural types, like uh, people with, you know, every form of body mod and, you know, uh, mm. jewelry, hang jewelry hanging off the penis and, and all those kinds of things, and the, you know, militant vegetarian and, you know, the hippie chick and all those, and then they'd have these really straight and normal people. And what I observed, and I've observed this uh, in other things too, is that the, the hip people actually were very rigid. They had definite, strong sense of uh, how people should live. And they had these really strong codes that they had developed. And the other people were confused. And they, you know, they were sort of easily pulled over to the other side uh, because the mainstream people really didn't have uh, uh, any strong code or any strong identity uh, that that they could hang on onto. I thought that was very interesting in you know a lot of different ways. Yes, it's almost kind of got reversed in a weird way. The you know the kind of maybe the original intention of the kind of countercultural types. I suppose uh, it almost seems that the non-countercultural types are countercultural. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I uh, personally I find a lot of. Uh, very hippies, and I find them very rigid, you know, uh, and very purist. And, and uh, um, we may reach a point where that becomes necessary. Uh, we may even be reaching that point now, but uh, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, one thing that's been really interesting to me is the, uh, the kind of the rise of the online publication, and you've started to you started your own new one, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about H Plus? Yeah, well, H plus. I mean, uh, first of all, I didn't really start it. It was started by the publishers, um, who uh, are very much into uh, pushing ideas related to transhumanism, uh, with the idea of advancing the uh, human species. You know, actual hands-on uh, uh, evolution of the human species through uh, primarily through technology and, and science, although uh, consciousness and uh, those other things are, are in there as well. Uh, so, you know, as a gun for hire uh, in, in uh, terms of uh, uh, 
becoming the editor in chief of this magazine. But I mean, it's it's a very cool, uh, very interesting magazine that yeah. uh, um, you know when you you dip in there, um, you really get a sense of how rapidly things are accelerating in, in technological and scientific world. And you know, there's uh, uh, obviously. Uh, you know the idea of the singularity, for instance, uh, that uh, we'll reach a point uh, where there's just a, a radical shift, uh, probably through uh, uh, the creation of advanced uh, intelligences that uh, we, you know, uh, artificial intelligence that, that uh, we either take into us or are external to us. Um, you know, when, when you take a look at the, some of the stuff that's going on, the, the news on a day-to-day -day or week-by-week -week basis is, is so extraordinary that uh, it becomes quite believable that uh, all this stuff uh, uh, can come to pass. And it, what makes it uh, more intense and uh, uh, interesting uh, and difficult and all those things is, uh, you know, all, all this stuff comes up in a period of uh, tremendous turbulence. and. Uh, uh, so we don't know how how all that dynamic, uh, that kind of dynamic will will uh, turn out at all. Um, but you know we, we explore it there on uh, H plus H plus magazine. You've definitely got a really nice broad base of writers. It seems there. I mean, um, I was looking. You have uh, you've even got Doug on there, haven't you? Now I think Doug Wasrushkov. Yes, yes, we had Doug. Uh, well, we we uh, in our uh, we update. Uh, content almost daily, actually Monday through Thursday on the website, and then we have a magazine uh, which has two issues, and number three will be up there in a couple of weeks. And number three, we're finally going to get it into print, but the Doug wrote a piece in there called uh, Hacking the Economy. Um, and uh, yeah, actually uh, the, the second issue had a whole bunch of economically oriented uh, uh, articles, including one about uh, whether an advanced AI system could have... Uh, uh, fix the uh, the market. Uh, there's an interview with a guy who wrote a book called The Death of Money uh, way back in uh, like 93 or 94 uh, where, where he pointed out that uh, most of uh, what we consider uh, monetary value, most, most of that value was just zeros and ones, digits, you know, uh, passing through uh, uh, the internet at a uh, this tremendous clip that, uh, you know, a uh, minute percentage of, uh, of uh, capital was actually touching down in the real economy of uh, goods and services and so forth. And he actually says that situation has, has improved somewhat, um, which I, I really don't have the chops to explain, but people <laughs> could, could, could read it. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, obviously you can get the online editions of the first two magazines, can't you? Um, yeah, you you go on and uh, look for a magazine and click on it, and uh, both issues are, are there to to read. And what's the URL for that? Pardon? What's the URL for that? For the uh, it's uh, spelled out H plus magazine, all uh, text H P L U S magazine dot com. All right, excellent. That's cool. Um, also, you're working on a new book at the moment, aren't you? Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Well, no, I'm not working on a book, but I have, I have a book out right now. It's called uh, Everybody Must Get Stoned, Rock Stars on Drugs, um, which uh, has really almost nothing to do with anything that we're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, from, from, you know, not uh, putting my brag on other people telling me it's, it's very funny. 
Um, and uh, it is about rock stars on drugs that has a, a lot of lists and uh, quotes and uh, uh, stories about uh, uh, musicians uh, doing crazy things or doing interesting things, etc. Um, and there, there are some, you know, there is an underlying intelligence there. Uh, there is some valid uh, uh, information and some uh, opinionizing about uh, drugs and the drug war um, and, uh, you know, about the distinctions between healthy and, and unhealthy uh, uses of, uh, of mind-altering substances. That's, that's all in there, uh, sort of snuck in between the... Uh, the snark and the uh, gossip and the quotes and the lists and all that. Um, so, anyway, yeah, that's. Uh, it's, I think it's doing okay, actually. That's good. It's good to hear in the uh, in this age where publishing seems to be uh, taking a bit of a nosedive at the moment, doesn't it? So it's good. Oh to hear. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. Uh, yeah, 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 it totally is. Excellent. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for that, man. I... with that that was uh are you serious it's great to have him back on the show um hopefully we'll get him on again fairly soon because i think he's just always very interesting like douglas Trushkoff, uh, is that the first time you've heard are you serious before i can't remember no no this this episode's a bit of a bit of a revisit to obviously all three of them being on before and um that's the only other time i've heard him ah. was when you had him on <clears throat> briefly in a few episodes ago so what was it that he said that, what did you resonate with what he said then um, I, I thought um, what he said about um, counterculture, uh, and it just sparked for me that, you know, like in the 60s, counterculture would have not necessarily thought about uh, the environment and about uh, living off the earth and stuff. It wasn't necessarily as big a part of it, whereas, um, you know, the other there were other object, political objectives and, you know, uh, gender equality things like they were much more important whereas now are we're seeing a little bit of a countercultural revolution in some respects i think in terms of you know you, you saw a big folk you know folk music became popular people started knitting people people have started getting allotments and um, mm. growing their own and that's you know one of the only good things to come out of the uh, big this big credit meltdown disaster whatever they <laughs> want to call it, financial apocalypse <laughs> yeah, so, whatever the relevant term for it is. so it's like going back almost to what Rishkov said in that people are the kind of counterculture if you want to call it that these days is almost rebelling against the meltdown and sort of creating your own economy yeah, so you, and, you can look at you look at look in some ways and you could have said you could look around you and say that there isn't you know a real counterculture but then that's only in some, maybe some a, a traditional aspect of it you know, mm. politically there doesn't appear to be a great deal uh, countercultural going on, but it, it all seems to be maybe move over to environmental. You know, think people like Plain Stupid and um, uh, Climate first, Camp, things like that. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and they all get together and and do what they did on um, the G20. Mm. Uh, which, yeah, phew, whether that was successful or not, we don't know. Now, I think another um, example of uh, of counterculture. I think again. I guess in some ways you could look at the, the, the internet 
showed us counterculture before and now the internet's become counterculture in some ways. I mean, the example I always use is Anonymous. I think I use it in some of the interviews. And Anonymous is a classic example of this kind of bottom-up internet-based activism. And it's kind of almost a repeat of Earth First and the... uh, Uh, anyone can claim something in the name of uh, first or even Al-Qaeda to to a degree it's kind of interesting to see how the internet's taken on physical form and all this kind of thing I don't know I just find it maybe that's the future maybe maybe yeah I'm not sure I've never really identified with learning I've never identified learning and the internet in the same way do you know what I mean Uh, I don't see any reason you can't uh, genuinely gain knowledge from the internet but to me it's not a way I'd want to study something and study it seriously you know know, Mm. like you were saying people you know can pick up you know (laughs) chants and things I I don't know about magic but you know Crowleyan chants and stuff and they can know them whereas in the past it was taking 30 to 40 years and working your way through so but the 30 to 40 years they spent, they gained not, you know, palpable knowledge. I'm not saying that people have to stick to only learning from books, but <laughs> I do sometimes wonder how much real kind of lasting knowledge you can get from the internet. That's why YouTube exists. You know, that's what people <laughs> want to do on the internet. YouTube, porn. <laughs> you look at what's actually out there, and it's a very small part of it. Is you know, your Wikipedia and things. Yeah, I mean, podcasts. I mean, no one likes those. But, uh, <laughs> well, anyway, uh, coming up next. We have some music from some guy who sort of gives us music to play each this week. This guy's fucking great, Ken. I don't know where you got him from, but uh, hold on to your hats. It's Daddy Tank with MySpace Heroes. <laughs> edition of My Space Heroes with me, Daddy Tank. Today, Chipsum with Bonaisance, Damien Frost with Slut Style, Cabbage with Industrial Tourism, and Adventure Fiddler David Bragger with My Four Reasons. I love you so much. Love, love, love you so much. Love, love you so much. Love, 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 love. Apricots and apricots, Argonauts and astronauts, forget-me-nots, sunflowers, better than cauliflowers. Sweet and sour, that's what I devour. I need your love like a daily shower. Love, 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 love. You don't have to pay me. I'll do it year by year on salary for free. Like that, I don't even know. I love you like a tree growing towards the sun. You are sunny like a sunny day, so all day I will play under your skies, under your eyes, under your eyes, under your eyes. Big things. Love, 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 love. No, no, not that, that. I love you so much. I wish I had more lyrics. It's kind of like sometimes I think that you are a giant aircraft carrier and I am just a person standing on board inside your love. But the dream never ends, just goes on and on. And I will say to all my friends, this is the one that I am on. This is the one that I belong to. Now it's your birthday, Bonnie, 20 years old. You're the one, you're so bold, like zesty sauce on my taco. Love, 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 
being in the sea again I'm being so crazy over you again Cause I love you Like left to right Love everything in the night Turns into day Like the moonlight into sun Love like the flower into love Honey bun Cause it's so sugary Home alone All alone If you were a fruit stand I'd be your number one customer I'd buy all your oranges and your bananas and your apricots and everything else too like limes because you would be the best fruit vendor I know it because you're so nice and you'd have a huge customer base because people would love you and you'd have the best fruit because that's who you are you have the best stuff and I love you good morning
I've been crawling in circles, trailing blood and effluvium. Trying to see something, maybe. I try to appreciate each piece of gravel in the mound. The holes in that drainage pipe aren't of utterly uniform size and shape. I tasted each one. Were they all drilled by the same bit? While the pipe moved an approximately consistent distance between each drilling? Or perhaps the pipe was stationary while a big thing that housed several drill bits each spaced an approximately consistent distance from each other drilled all the holes at once in that drainage pipe. And the palace. Where did the wood come from? How was it cured? What tree did it come from? How many different trees can you find in one pallet? And how did that one break? And what sort of cargo was last placed on that one before it broke? And how did it break? And what kind of cargo was placed on that one before it broke? Where do nails come from? Where do nails come from? Where do nails come from, anyway? Where do nails come from? Where do nails come from? Sitting in God's penis, I get this special feeling. How old is that bulldozer? Each rock in the pile is unique. Each drip of rust on the steamroller is accompanied by a different shade of special. How long has that drainage pipe been sitting there? A thousand pieces of bulldozer all attached to each other with screws and bolts. I don't know if it's the screws or the bolts that cost more for the manufacturer. It's probably a bolts, though. That's manufacturer with a capital M. M. A capital M. Raw materials carefully extracted, mixed, and molded 
into precisely the right interlocking shapes to produce a whole much greater than the sum of its characteristic form. I can see traces of the original material, insufficient in nature, carried on to its destiny on the powdery backs of God's favorite creation. Sleepy and old, his apprentice has been in training long enough to grasp the reins of that wonderful sleigh. By wonderful here, the narrator intends the more rudimentary interpretation of the term. That is to say, that, that which is full, full of wonder. Of wonder. Full right up. Surrounded by remnants of a lesser time. The gravel pile takes on a level of majesty until precisely at the time of this playback of my recording, when the universe is at its apex, such that the throne of this garrulous creature does shine with all its scintillating potential, when I, you, think bits of scrumbly lattice work right up the familiar beacon. Right up it! when you know you've oozed enough to see something. Maybe. No hey, no hey, buddy. So I, perched in the scoop of this backhoe, have shed my his personal day, and can return back to my misanthropic idolism, having been enlightened and soothed by the flat yellow vision of progress.
put that racket together. Um, <laughs> some, some... Man, he's awesome. Can you get a t-shirt? What, uh, my Space Heroes t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> hat stroke hat, insert punch line. <laughs> that might be quite cool. You could like have, uh, I don't know, you, your head transpired. Picture of me with my two thumbs up, grinning at the cam, uh, the uh, camera. <laughs> grinning at webcam with uh... with uh, some Comic Sans writing. <laughs> daddy, <laughs> Daddy Tank. Uh, Wingdings my <laughs> is my space hero. <laughs> my space hero? Question mark. Anyway, um, yeah. So I, I think this has been a good episode. Um, I think obviously it's. Uh, three of the best in some ways that we've managed to get together for the episode. I mean, what your kind of what's your final thought, Kim? Uh, about that or about everything in general? About world, no, no, about <laughs> <laughs> the universe at large. Uh, no, it's very good, some good insightful points, particularly particularly enjoyed uh, Are You Serious? Which, um, I don't remember him making that much of an impression on me the first time I heard him. Um, I mean, you know, interesting, but he, he, I really thought he was very very interesting came up with some and there's some good some good points that make you sit back and, and think oh yeah you know uh, and that doesn't happen that often um, especially when you listen to uh, sitting now yeah. <laughs> sitting now <laughs> I see it's like that is it right <laughs> dumbing down dumbing downs everywhere again <laughs> yeah no I think I think generally the kind of take home message for me is that yeah I don't know I think the internet's to blame as well I think the internet's to blame I think information so freely available now it's there's no kind of uh it's not like a club anymore almost i remember talking to uh, richard metzger about this before as well uh, it almost felt exclusive almost that you're part of this kind of counterculture and it's almost this goes back to what are you serious was talking about you know with this kind of snobbery that you encounter all the time and i think i think that's kind of partially you know part to do with it but also yeah and i also agree with metzger as well where he talks about the pre-millennium tension and people were sort of leaning towards these kind of fringe ideas as a you know as a I guess a springboard for that kind of thing. But you know what? It's a, it's a generational thing. In the same way that people people always rebel against their parents, and when you've grown up with the internet, and you know the internet has been the thing that has, you know, it's, it's completely banal, of no interest, you know, relative interest. Not it's still kind of an exciting, you know, MySpace, Facebook, all that's new. It's still exciting for the, the current generation. But when it's been around and it's peaked <laughs> intellectually, which I think it might have done some time ago. It, people are going to turn around and think, it, it, it's probably already started somewhere people are going to start you know reading books and going well you know let's see what you know they're probably going to start reading books written in the 1800s in the same way that people have started knitting and all the rest of it mm. you know who knows maybe libraries will be full again God, I doubt that somehow but anyway <laughs> <laughs> ebook libraries maybe <laughs> crazy crazy kids these days you know? books are just uh, things of the oh, past I, yeah, I I can't remember if I bored you or someone else with this the other day, but uh, me being an obsessive Buffy fan, there was a. I've started watching it from the beginning again for the, about the fifth time, <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a nice bit where Giles says something about it. he's he's talking to Miss Calendar. She's uh, like a techno pagan, and she believes in the inter- she represents the internet and all modern. Ah, and right. Buffy Giles is all like stuffy, and and he and there's just has this thing about books, and he says, well, you know. The knowledge you gain from the internet that doesn't have a smell um you know books <laughs> not just about smell obviously but you know i remember i remain, remember reading some of the books you know some some of the really good books i, I remember sitting there reading them and being completely in, engrossed 
and uh, you know you remember the kind of light and the sounds and stuff that were going on at the time mm. it's a, to a total you know 3d 4d experience if you like all the senses whereas i don't really think the internet does that and the books don't have little pop-up things that come I'm up. I'm going to go and get my hammer and smash my computer now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you Luddite. Anyway. <laughs> but, but I love the fact that I got all, I got all profound then based on a quote from Giles from Buffy the Vampire. So. <laughs> Prof profoundness found in uh, the strangest places. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, so we are going to be back next week and we, we've got uh, Reverend Ivan Stang on the show again um, and uh, that's always a good time. So, uh, yeah, that will be up uh, late next week and we'll also have new episodes of uh, Behind Closed Doors as well, yes, if we figure out how to get the music. Anyway, it's a long story. We'll, we'll, we'll get one out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've got no excuse now. I've got new technology. But if you want to get in contact with me, you can uh, email me at ken at sittingnow.co.uk and if you want to get in contact with with Kim, is it Daddy Tanker's sitting there? Uh, I don't, haven't received an email on that address yet, so I don't actually remember anymore. I think I might have to. Just... I might have <laughs> need to reset it actually, but yeah, uh, <laughs> that might be why. <laughs> Got a burning desire to speak to me? Then you can send it to Ken, okay. and he'll he'll censor anything I don't want to read. Yeah, so it will only be positive stuff coming his way. <laughs> He's a bit like Jabba the Hutt, and I'm a little bit like the little creature that Jabba the Hutt has on a chain. You know, the little <laughs> dangly thing. <laughs> he reads my mail. <laughs> he keeps me in check. I do. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be back next week with Eileen Stang. Um, and, yeah, we'll see. And also, like I said, Behind Closed Doors will be out in the week. I imagine that will probably come out on Monday. And, yes, so we'll see you